Hey, good morning, good morning, DCF family. Welcome. Welcome to 2024, second week. So uh, we're glad you're joining us this morning. You're so welcome. Um, if you're watching online, welcome to you as well. Um, I just want to read us a scripture for this morning as we get ready to worship. It is found in Psalm 6511, and it says this, You crown the year with your bounty, and your paths overflow. Are y'all, is that some good news for y'all this morning? I know um, 2023, for a lot of us, there's challenges from 2023, but I'm so glad that there is just this natural time and season of resetting and restarting that the Lord has for us, that we know that winter is over when spring and flower blossoms and little buds start to come up, and so we go from summer into fall, kind of, sort of, here in the South, but, but there are just times and seasons and rhythms that the Lord has put in place, but I love that His promise for us is that He crowns the year with bounty, and His pathways are good for us. So will you stand with us this morning as we start to worship we're so glad that you're joining with us this morning. So let's pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, we just come in the name of Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful. Um, Lord, just for your promises and your truth and your goodness and your word of who you are, Lord. God, we thank you that we lean into that this morning. God, I just thank you that, Lord, you're, you have sworn by yourself that your presence would be with us, Lord, that you are gathered with us, Lord, when we come together in your midst, Lord, with two or three, Lord. And God, I love for the power of community, Lord, and what that creates and the atmosphere and the potential that we have when we come together, Lord, because our eyes and our hearts and our minds are fixed on you this morning. King Jesus, we worship you, we worship you, we worship you, we honor you, and we bless your name this morning because you are worthy. Lord, be inhabited in our praises this morning, Lord. Dwell among us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together, y'all.
during our prayer time we had a, um, a picture and I just want to share that with us because this song is actually pertinent to it um, and it was literally a picture I heard the word um, sail ship and you don't normally hear the word sail ship you usually hear sail boat but a sail boat is smaller and it usually has just like the one sail on it or the one mast on it but I heard the word sail ship this morning and that a sail ship has got many masts on it and many sails on it. And there's a sense this morning of what the Lord is doing in us as a body together. And it's this. He said, raise the sails. The wind is coming. So this morning, can you grab hold of that as a promise for this new year to raise the mast, to raise that the, the mast is permanent, but to raise the sail of your spirit the wind is coming. He wants you to catch something in his spirit this morning of what he's doing and what he's going to do in this new year um, in us and with us and for us and through us. So, Amy, and we're going to just do this song again, y'all. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins. He echo up my days. Oh, he is my song. Cause you are good, good. Oh, you are good, good. 
Thank you, Father, that we are children of God. We are yours. Thank you, Father, for the promises and the truth. Thank you, Father, for your presence here in this room, that you desire to make yourself known to your children. May we be ready to hear. We thank you, Lord, for this time of worship with you in Jesus' name. We're doing, uh, we only did two songs this morning because we're doing something a little different um, with our communion. So we're going to be heading into communion time now. Thank you to the worship team. So um, when I was thinking about doing communion, there is a list of songs that we have available these are the songs you can use. And I was listening to them. And at the beginning of one of the songs on YouTube, the worship leader starts by explaining a little of the song. And she brought up a phrase that is from Moravians, I believe I'm saying that right, from the Moravians. And the, the statement is, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And that really struck me. What does that mean? We are the reward of his suffering. It's not about, it's not as simple as, okay, well, our sins are forgiven. That's amazing. It's beyond that. We, in relationship with him, are the reward that he wants from his suffering. We, our lives lived out for him is the reward for his suffering. He is worthy of everything. One of the interesting things about this phrase when I looked it up, the Moravians would sell themselves into slavery so that they could go preach the gospel to people that they would, other slaves that would never hear it. They would literally give themselves away. I don't know what the call is for each of us. We know that individually. But what I hear in my heart is, I want my life to be a reward for his suffering. I want to live that out. And I need him to show me what that means for me. 
and for each of us that he would show us what that means for us. So we're going to take communion in remembering his suffering and what that means for us. Um, this is an open communion house. You don't need to be um, a member. You don't. It, it, you are wanting to come have communion. Please join us. Parents, for your kids, you know if they understand the importance of this. And we will leave it up to you whether they will be taking that or not. Um, we're going to start some music. And please come up the center aisle. Get your... Um, your elements, go back to your seats, maybe gather in groups, and um, then we will take communion together. So, the scripture talks about um, what Jesus said on the night uh, that he was to be betrayed. And it said, on the night he was to be betrayed, and after giving thanks, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Thank you. There's no other word I can really think to say, but thank you for your body and your blood. Yeah, Jesus, this morning, may you receive through us the reward of your suffering, Lord, that you would receive every glory that is due your name, Lord. We worship you and we honor you this morning. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus, that has restored us to the heart of the Father, Lord, that has restored our bodies from brokenness to wholeness, Lord. God, that has wiped away every sin, Lord, past, present, and future, Lord, that you have redeemed us fully, Lord. We worship you and we thank you this morning, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for being with us this morning. And um, we're so glad that you are here. Um, if you are guests with us this morning, if we would love to get to connect with you and get to know you, um, we have the connection card at DathanCF.com. And uh, we'd love to see how your story intersects with our story and what the Lord is doing um, in us for this coming year and how we walk together to fill the purposes and the vision that God has for us as a local church body. Um, if you have not done a testimony card yet of 2023 of the Lord's faithfulness, we'd love for you to do that and let us know what that is. And then in 2024, what are you trusting the Lord for? We have got, you know, our whole board back there of like things that people are listing. We want to come alongside you, pray with you, um, pray for you. So as you're walking by those and you look at one of those and you see something, pray for that um, request of the Lord for 2024. Um, this coming up week, we are going to be doing um, the 28th. We're going to be, not this week, but next the next couple weeks, we're going to be launching our grace teams. Grace teams is how you serve in this local body to help 
fulfill the purpose and the mission and the vision that God has given us. All of you have been giving strengths. You've all been giving gifts. And we want you to use those to help build the body to grow and build itself up in love. So we'll be talking a little bit about grace teams in the next couple of weeks as well. And then on our website, dothancf.com, there's multiple ways to give online, in person, in the box at front, and auto drafts through your bank. So we are so thankful for the generosity of this house, and we just bless you guys for that. You can pull out your phones, and you can do that right now if you haven't done it already for this week. So thank you for that. We're going to dismiss our kids and our youth, and David is going to be coming with his message of continuing the series of um, uh, just how God's abundance for us, that he came to bring us abundant life. Amen. We'll be back, y'all. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Matthew in just a minute, but we uh, just want to give a quick recap of uh, last week. We started a new series called uh, Abundant Life, and so a lot of that scripture we know, Jesus said, um, <clears throat> he's, he's, uh, he talked about uh, two job descriptions, and basically he said the, the enemy, the thief, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy but he said, but I have come. So there's this huge contrast between two ways of living, the two ways of having life. So you can live in the world, basically what he's going after is you can actually live in this world and not be living. You can be alive, but not alive. And so, but what's really interesting, he didn't say he would just bring life. If he had said that, it would have been enough. It would have been powerful. But he added something to it. He said, not just life, but abundant overflowing, more than you can hope or imagine or believe or dream. This is the kind of life that I want to bring to you. But the context was you have to pick one. And so I always love it when people say, you know, I'm just going to opt out. It's like, well, some things you can opt out in. This is not one of those things. And you're like, well, I'm just not going to choose that. So I'm not choosing anything. That's not how life works because you don't choose one thing. Doesn't mean that something isn't chosen for you because you refuse to choose, right? So if you, if you don't want to be in politics and say, hey, I'm not going to vote, that's totally up to you. You can choose not to do that. But, but my challenge to you is you also don't get to complain <laughs> if, you, if things didn't work out the way you, you wanted to because you didn't put your voice in as a citizen. And so something very similar in the kingdom, Jesus is saying, hey, there's, there's two different ways of living. We're going to go after that a little bit today. But uh, just to talk a little bit about Ecclesiastes from last week, we started out with this, this uh, concept this word in Ecclesiastes, there's two root words, and one of the first ones is called hevel. And so hevel is this picture of the literal meaning is like smoke or vapor or something along those lines. And, uh, and so the, the translation for it in different scriptures, different passages, or, or sorry, different Bibles, uh, the King James says vanity of vanities. Life is vanity. It's like it just, and then the New, uh, New International Version says meaningless, meaningless. Life is meaningless. The challenge with some of those words uh, is that in that original concept, they don't always capture the essence of it because of the translation from uh, one language to the other. And so the, the word goes throughout the Bible, uh, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, about 40 times it shows up in, in Ecclesiastes. And the picture it's painting is, life is not what you expect it to be. Like, you, you know, you read Proverbs, and Proverbs is this beautiful picture of, if, if you live this way, then these things will happen to you. If you live a different way, then these other things will happen to you. And generally that's true, right? And we know that that's true. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes was saying was, sometimes it doesn't seem like that works out. Because he, he says sometimes the wicked live terribly and they live a long life. And then the, the just, um, they live faithfully 
and love God, and then they die too soon. And he goes, this, this is hevel. This is an enigma. This makes no sense to me, and I can't, I can't figure out what's going on. And then the next root word he said um, was, was a phrase called under the sun. So he said, um, verse 1 says, meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, enigma, enigma. And it just goes after this vapor, vapor, smoke, smoke, this idea of you can see it and it seems to be there and then you grasp at it and it seems to be missing. And then the second root word or phrase is under the sun. And so then the picture is when you understand the, the whole concept, he's saying this is what life looks like under the sun. And under the sun just means here on earth. In other words, it's not eternal life he's talking about. Um, and so if, you, if you're not careful, you see the life that everybody lives here under the sun, and, and you make the mistake of thinking that's what all of life is supposed to be like. That somehow when we look at life and it doesn't work out the way we think, if we don't see justice, then maybe there's not justice, right? If we don't see equality, then there isn't equality. But even in our own history as, as Americans, we know that some of those things didn't exist in the beginning of the nation, even though the heart of the founding fathers was to have it. And there was a lot of, lot of con uh, conversations about slavery, and you know, go read some of the history books, and a lot of conversations about what existed, the, the real and then the ideal. What's the ideal? And so they wrote that into the Constitution uh, with an understanding that there are things that exist right now that as we gain better understanding and we do a better job as human beings, right? And hopefully, as the founding father says, that to live under a just God, if we do that well, then these things will grow and some of these terrible things that are happening in our nation will actually stop happening. So even then, it was Hevel. It starts out as under the sun was the, the moments of what they were living in in the beginning of a nation. And then later on, as we progress and we begin to understand things about equality and all men are created equal, that's the whole picture of what they were painting. Then you see there, there is a real that we have to deal with, but there's an ideal. And in many ways, this is what God's saying. There's, a, there's the world that is broken under the sun, people living in sin, you know, sin from the time of the early humans all the way up until now, and you see cities, oftentimes you'll say, oh, that city's just a cesspool of evil. And that's true. And the reason why is you get a lot of people together, there's a higher number of evil people, right? But also there's a higher number of just and kind and good people too. And so every city, I don't care where you go, every city has its challenging parts and its not so challenging parts, right? And, and, the, and, the, and the difference is what kind of value system or what kind of culture are we gathering together under? And so there's this picture again in Ecclesiastes that paints the picture of what life is like under the sun. And he says, it's hevel. It sometimes just doesn't make sense. But if you, if you understand the concept, he's saying, this is what life here looks like. If you refuse to accept the God of all life, that, you know, not just is the God of the here and the now, but he's the God of the future. He's God of the past and he's the God of the future. So there's this picture we're painting of what does life look like? And quite frankly, sometimes it doesn't make sense. So that leads me to kind of opening with a question. And maybe you're not expecting this from a pastor. Um, and at the risk of offending you, because I, I would, I, for the sake of growing and equipping you, sometimes I'll offend you. So if I offend your sensibilities, I try not to do, do that just to, to, you know, get a rise out of you or just to be controversial uh, or just to, you know, use my personality for fun. <laughs> I try not to do that. I'm guilty of it sometimes, but I try not to. But the idea behind this, this question is it may challenge you as a believer, and that's okay, um, if it does, I'm, I apologize in advance, but I, I don't apologize for what I'm trying to do with the question. Does that make sense? So here's the question. Do you ever feel like Christianity isn't working? <laughs> I 
And that's a tough one, right? Because if we're honest, especially in the early days as a believer, there was a bunch of stuff that I assumed when I read Scripture and when I lived life. I just assumed things would work out in ways that it turns out they didn't work out that way. Um, one of the biggest challenges I found out very quickly was I was in charge of my own life, right? And I could give that charge over to God or not. And to the degree that I gave that charge over to God, my life tended to be better. That's one of the things I discovered. But one of the really challenging things was I, I didn't have control over anybody else. And that really bothers me, if I'm honest, right? I'm like, I would really like for you guys to live right, <laughs> especially when it affects me, right? I would really like for my family not to be the way my family is sometimes. And I would really like, you know, for, for things to work out differently than sometimes what I assume. What I have discovered, though, is when I'm in the midst of those trials and those tribulations and those challenges, because the Bible says, you know, Jesus talked about that. He said, there are going to be trials and, and trouble in this life. But the good news is I have overcome this whole life, right? He's the overcomer. And when we get into him, that's when we see something other than heaven. Right? We, see, we, some, we see it begin to make sense because I always look back from all the challenges in my life and I look at the path and the path wasn't the thing that I thought I was going to go down. It, 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 I had a different idea what that path and that way was going to look like. But when I look backwards, I see that the Lord was guiding me through that path and where I was obedient in that path, my life was better than it was when I was disobedient. So we kind of get that. But so often in, in our Christianity, um, sometimes we're discouraged because we pray prayers and they don't seem to work. Um, I've been praying for the sick for um, almost 40 years now. Um, and, and I started out because I saw God do some incredible things. And I've prayed for a lot of sick people in my time, especially being an elder. The Bible says, call for the elders of the church. They'll anoint the person with oil, pray a prayer of faith, and the, and the sick will, be, will, will rise up. And I was like, it's clear, man. Just be an elder. Once you get a, become an elder, apparently there's magic in eldership. And you can pray over people, and they all get healed, <laughs> right? And then I pray for people, and some of them got healed. So part of that, again, is I look at that and go, uh, can I build a doctrine out of that and say, hey, because I did something a certain way that I thought the Bible said to do it, and then it didn't turn out the way I thought, do I, do I now get the, the um, responsibility or the privilege or the authority to build a doctrine out of my experiences? And uh, when you talk about truth and you talk about debate and arguments, there's something called uh, anecdotal stories. And, it, and it's trying to prove a point with a story that, that happened to you. So, so you tell a story about, all, and, and what you're trying to do is you take this one experience that you had with this story, and you try to make that a proof for all other stories that you have never experienced. And that's a dangerous thing. You, you can get in a lot of trouble by doing that. And so I think so often what we do is we do that with God. We assume certain things about God because we've been taught certain things about God. Some of those things, if we're honest, um, aren't true. I remember in Bible college, uh, one of my professors said, um, he preached a message about the old man, you know, the, the, you know, you become a new creature in Christ. And he made this comment and he said, it was just a phrase and he was trying to use it as an illustration, but he said, your old man is never so dead that he can't be resurrected. And I thought, you know, anecdotally, I know what, what he means by that. I have experienced, as a believer, old patterns of sin rise up again in my life. Right? I've experienced that. But the way he said it, even though he meant well, was tremendously unhelpful for me as a believer over the next 15 years. Because in my head, I, saw, I, I didn't see that I was a new creature. I said that I, I was an old creature just trying to turn over a new leaf. And every time I'd turn over a new leaf, the wind would blow and blow it back over again, right? And so I, could, I was struggled so much because of that phrase that he used 
And again, his heart was right, and, and, I, and I understand now what he meant. But he said something, and because of my assumptions, I used that to build a doctrine in my own heart that actually was more detrimental and more unhelpful than it was helpful. And so we can do that. It's very easy to do. Here's an example. For, for example, you know, a little boy grows up in church. He goes to VBS. You know, he has an encounter with Jesus. He gives his life to the Lord. He grows up in youth group. You know, his first kiss is, you know, in the old sanctuary. Anybody know about old sanctuaries, right? So, so his life is just church life, right? That's what he's, but, but the life he sees at home, his mom and dad are leaders of the church, but the life he sees at home is, is not, um, it's not in line with the life he hears preached and the life he sees demonstrated in scripture. So he sees something different and, and then he sees trouble brewing at home and it, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And, and he's praying and he's like, God, my mom and dad fight all the time and Lord rescue and save their marriage. And he prays and he prays and prays and then they get a divorce. And so then the question is, you know, Lord, do you care? And have you done that? Have you prayed a prayer like that? And then it didn't happen the way you thought. Um, some of that is obvious. It's like you're trying, you're asking for something for someone else. And ultimately, those people have to make their own decisions for Jesus, right? They are independent, as it were. They were, they're independent agents to God. And so they have a responsibility to God, and God has a responsibility to him, to them. But we see this, uh, um, maybe it's not so dramatic, but you attend church, you got a decent job, you got good kids, a place to live, car, friends, take vacations, you listen to the Joy FM like every good Christian should, right? <laughs> and, and, you, and you have this life, but somewhere in it, you're like, it, it's, not, it's not giving me what it's promised. I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled, there's just something miss, missing. And so you begin to ask the question, does Christianity actually even work? And so there's this big thing right now called deconstruction. Anybody heard that phrase? Um, it's all over the internet, it's all over books, people are writing tons of books. And a lot of it is a good thing in the sense that deconstruction basically in its essence is you learned a certain thing about or a certain way about church and church world and church life and what family life looks like, how marriage is supposed to work, how you raise your kids, all these things, you learn that. And then some of those things, it turns out, were either um, misconstrued, they were bad teachings, they were taken out of context, they, they, they're in the Bible, but not of the Bible, if that makes sense. And so you realize that, and, you're, and you start asking the question, how much of my history as a believer is junk, is just trash? And I need to go back and tear some of that stuff down and rebuild it. So in that sense, deconstruction is a wonderful thing. And the truth is, we're always going to be doing that, right? We're going to, like my, that phrase that my Bible school uh, professor taught me, we're going to deconstruct that. It's not a bad thing. The problem with it, it begins to take on a life in this culture where this postmodern mindset is when you begin to deconstruct God, right, in your walk with God, then you can make your walk with God what you would like it to be, right? So in essence, you're living your truth, right? You live your truth, I'll live my truth, and we'll just all get along. And anybody with a brain knows that's about the stupidest thing anybody could say and still breathe, right? Like your truth and my truth, like your opinion and my opinion, that's a thing. But your truth and my truth, that's not how, that's not how real life works. And we know that. There is an objective truth, right? And once we understand that, this, if, we're, if we're not careful, we buy into the postmodern culture and we begin to deconstruct our Christian walk from what we were taught. And rather than going back and finding the actual truth behind what it really is, we just reconstruct a Jesus that meets our needs, pleases us, makes us happy, and on and on and on. So what we really do is we, we create an idol. And that's just as dangerous as not. 
So sometimes you're, you're going after life and it's not happening. Christianity is not working the way you think it should be. So there's nothing wrong with deconstructing, but you have to do it in the right way. So there's this really interesting scripture in John 14. Jesus is talking. Uh, this is John 14, 1 through 6, and he says this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, why do you think he said that? <laughs> right? Your hearts are going to be troubled, right? So he's basically going out, in this world, you are going to have trouble. But why? Because hevel. We, under the sun, we live in a broken, fallen world. And then I talked about last week how God is trying to invade the earth. Jesus comes, invades the earth, and he, and he, he teaches the disciples the prayer. They ask him for it. And the prayer is, in the same way that God works in heaven, let him do that here. So how is he going to do that? Just, you know, is he just going to big lips in the sky go, do better, right? <laughs> is that how it's going to work? Or is he going to come and work inside of you, and then you are going to work inside the culture? And from what we see, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to take 12 guys who don't know nothing, apparently, in Scripture, right? And he's, he says, I'm going to walk with them for about three years, and I'm going to be the rabbi, which means teacher. They're going to be the disciple, which means learner. And I'm not just going to teach them my character, how to be like me. I'm going to also teach them my competencies so they can do like me, right? And so part of the, what I see, part of the problem in church world is we're so big about being the character of Jesus, which is awesome and we should, and it makes a difference, but so often we don't see the doing part happening very much. And so we're going to get into this in just a minute, some of the things that Jesus taught his disciples to do. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, you're living in a fallen, broken world, but he says you believe in God. In other words, this is, hevel under the sun is not the only picture. It's not the final say. There's something more. And he goes on into this. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So this is bridal language. And so when you go back and study this, he's using this phrase to talk about a husband. And, and in their time, they would get engaged. And their engagement was similar to ours, but a little bit more serious. And they would, they would get engaged. And then the father, or the, sorry, the husband-to-be, the fiance, we would call it that, he would go away and he would make a place so that he could bring his wife to that place, right? So the picture then is um, the husband would help establish a physical home, right? He would be the protector, the provider. He would do those things. And then his wife, as, he enter, as she comes in, she helps kind of build the home and what that looks like. And together they build a life, right? S similar picture to now. If you were wealthy, um, if you were poor, you would typically build a room onto your father's house because that's how extended family worked. You'd have your own space, but you'd live together as an extended family. If you were wealthy, you would go and you would build a mansion. You would build a palace, and you would bring your queen to the palace, to use modern-day language, right? And so, so this is the picture Jesus is painting. He says, he says hey, I'm going to go away, but I'm, 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 the reason I'm going away is I'm preparing a place for you, Right? I'm, I'm getting it ready so that when you come and you're with me, this is what he kind of goes into. He says, uh, my father's house has many rooms. And again, that's one of those things he was talking about is if you were poor, you would build a room onto your father's house. And then he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am, right? So Jesus, he's basically saying, um, he's preparing them for what's coming next. I'm going to leave, sort of, but I'm, I'm going to, the reason I'm leaving is so my spirit can come and live inside of you. And then at some point, all of this hevel under the sun is going to end, and we're all going to be together. And it's going to be 
it's going to be everything you dreamed of as a bride, right? But he goes into this and he says, um, he said, Jesus saying to the disciples, verse 4, he says, you know the way to the place I'm going. So here's the thing. When Jesus said that, he wasn't wrong, <laughs> right? But in another way he could have said that is, you should know the way, right? Because I've been with you. Like they asked him one time, he's like, you know, he's talking about the father. He and the father are one. And, and, and that's kind of what he was going after, right? They should have understood that. And, and the disciples said, show us the father. And he, Jesus says, you've been with me this long and you haven't seen the father. Like, you know, I mean, duh, had to come out of his mouth numerous times with the disciples. And it's easy to look at them like that. But if we're honest, that's us too, right? Like I'm Peter in so many ways, or I'm John, or I'm Thomas in so many ways. So he's telling the story and he says, you know the way, he's talking to his disciples, to the place where I'm going. And they're like, we don't know, because this is what they go into. He says, Thomas, I love Thomas. Thomas was the guy who said what everybody was thinking, right? Some of you guys know, if you don't know that person, it's because you're that person, right? You probably talk during movies. You should stop that. I'm just saying, right? This is Thomas. He probably talked during movies. So Thomas said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, I love how he starts with that. You know, that's a really cool thing because you, if you go look at Thomas's story, this is really helpful, right? He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> I love it. All the other disciples are going, don't say that out loud, right? Thomas does. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So, I mean, think about this for a second. I mean, he, he finishes out with Jesus answered, I am the way. This is famous. Everybody knows this scripture. Jesus answered, I'm the way, right? So Jesus is a noun, the way, but he's also a verb, the way, right? And so he, we're going to get into this as we finish this message. But basically, Thomas is saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You are confusing us. You're assuming we're way more mature than we actually are. <laughs> I don't know if you ever said that out loud, but if, if anybody was going to say it out loud, Thomas was going to say it out loud, right? But he goes after this and he says, Jesus said, you know where I'm going. And he's like, we, I wish, I think we should. But if I'm honest, I don't know where you're going, Lord. Would you tell me? So Jesus does, and he says something phenomenal. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to, Father, to the Father except through me. So he's saying, I, I personally, as a person, am the way. So what is a way? A way is a path, right? A way is, you know, show me the way to the grocery store. Um, if you're a woman, you talk about all the, you know, the... Uh, the monuments along the way. You go by that big tree and then, you know, you turn left. If you're a guy, you'll say you go on this street and east and west, or maybe you're opposite. I don't know. But that's, that's typically how we do it. We go, there's a path to that place. Sometimes there's multiple paths. I don't know if you, but my goal in life is to find the shortest path, right? The most efficient path to the places I frequent. Anybody else do that? My wife is like, let's go the scenic route. I'm like, no, that takes like 38 seconds longer than if we go the right way, I think. So this is a conversation that's happened. Jesus is saying to them, there's a way. I'm going somewhere. More than hevel, more than under the sun, that's part of it. That's a part of this. But there's somewhere else that I'm going. And he's not, and, and, and as much as he talks, we so talk about a place, Right? Jesus wasn't so interested in a place called heaven so much as a person called father, right? So it was always about a relationship. So often when Jesus talked about things, we make assumptions about what he meant, right? When you're trying to win somebody to Jesus, how do you do it? If you were to die right now, where would you go? That's a place. That's not a person, 
So that's a bad way to evangelize, right? Don't do that. But, but having a conversation, do you know the Father? There's some reference to that, and you can ask someone what their father is like, was like with them growing up, and the story they tell you about their father will tell you what they know about their heavenly father. If he was good, a good dad, then likely it's going to be an easy transition to understand a good father. But if he was not so good, and maybe even abusive or worse, the picture they have of the father is horrific. And so when you say we're going to go to a place, that's appealing to some degree, but the moment you tell them that they're coming back into a relationship with their father, the assumption is, I don't want to go down that path. Why? Because I don't want to end at that destination. Because in their head, a father is bad. And so Jesus is having this conversation, and, and, and we understand it a little bit, but we, we, we go after the way and go, Jesus is the noun. He's the way. He's the access to the father, and that's true. But part of his life here, he spent three years of his life, if he was just going to tell a story and just going to tell them how this, you ought to do this, he would have spent a little bit of time preaching some stuff, wrote some books, and have been out of here. So it wasn't just about knowing the truth, right? This is why he said there was more than just the truth. There was also a way and there was also life. And remember, we started the series with what does abundant life look like? This is the conversation we're happen, having as we go forward. And so this concept of the way is not just Jesus being accessed. We get that. That's awesome. You can't become a believer without understanding that concept. But Jesus spent three years walking with his disciples. Camping is a better way to put it, with his disciples, right? And he was constantly walking, going wherever he went, he was walking. So, so the way, it turns out, that something about the way actually matters. So here's how I know that that's true, because um, when my wife says, um, what are you wearing, right? She can mean that, in the way she says it, she can mean that two different ways. She can say, uh, what are you wearing? And I can say, I'm thinking about wearing this. Or I can come out in an outfit that I put together and I think looks really good, and she says, what are you wearing? <laughs> Any married people know what I'm talking about, right? So, so that's, that, there's a way. And Karen and I have been married for about 37 years or so, right? We, 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 you know, we're just about getting good at it. And, and one of the things we learned is it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? So that's a way. And so we get this. Um, and, and the challenge is, is that believers, so often in this passage, we focus on and, and preach and teach and live about the truth of Jesus. And very, very seldom do we talk about the ways of Jesus, right? And so the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes and he, he, he doesn't just tell us about the way. He actually shows us the way he lives. So look at the way that Jesus lived. It's really interesting. Compare it to how most of us live. Jesus was full of joy all the time. Most of us are full of stress, right, if we're honest. Jesus didn't worry and told us not to worry. Um, and, and it turns out in culture, now some people say, some uh, uh, leaders, cult, uh, cultural leaders say that this is the most anxious generation in history. Like all of the people who are alive right now are the most anxious people that have ever lived in all of time. And I believe that's probably true. Um, Jesus stopped for people. I don't know about you, I don't have time for people. And you're like, but you're a pastor. People's what you do. I know, but I still don't have time for them. Like, if you'll just do what I say, right, then everything will work out. But it turns out people don't just need to hear what you say. You, you do this as parents. Like, you're living your life, and you're like, 
you need to do what I say. And then they get old enough to where they figure out what you say and what you're doing aren't the same thing. And they call you on it. And you, you're like, you were my favorite child. And now you're, I'm putting you back down at the bottom, right? Because they call you on the way you're living is not the way you're asking them to live. And so often in religious circles, this is what we do. We tell people how to live, but then we as pastors or leaders or believers aren't actually living that way. So Jesus stopped for people. So, you know, there's a meme that says, ain't nobody got time for that, right? Well, I got time for people. Um, he was consumed with ongoing fellowship with his father. Like he would literally break away from a revival moment and go spend time with his father, right? They're, they're, at one point they're asking, the disciples are going, hey, where are we going next? And he's like, hey, I'll be back in a minute. And then he just, <laughs> he goes away and he prays and they're like, uh, anybody know where Jesus went? It's like, I think we all know where Jesus went, right? He's talking to his father. So what was he doing? Part of that was his, his source of life was his relationship with his father. That wasn't just a truth he was teaching. It was a model. It was a way that he was presenting to the disciples. He said, he basically would say, hey, you know how I go away from time to time and spend time with the father? You should probably do that, Right? Because they're, they're like, we want to do what you're doing, Jesus. We want to, you know, we want to be like you. We're, everybody wants to be like Mike, right? But nobody wants to practice um, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, right? I want to be the most amazing basketball player anybody's ever known, but I'm not going to put in the time. So the point is, is Jesus is going after this way, and he's saying, hey, there's a, I'm teaching you not just the truth about life, but I'm also going to teach you a way. So I, I think I've kind of gone after that. A little bit, but you see, you see the time he spent in with the disciples, and the question is, did they ever even get it? Like, you see the questions they ask him, and Jesus is just the consternation. You're like, are you guys ever going to get this? At some point, obviously, they do. But the question is, if, 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 if it was tough for them, where they were literally spending their time with Jesus, camping out, having dinner, is there any hope for us, right? And the answer is, thanks, thankfully, there is. Um, because of God's spirit coming and dwelling in us, and all, all those things, obviously. But here's just an example. Just I'm pulling this from my own quote-unquote career field, right? I just want to put some burnout statistics. This is how we're living life so often. And you would think as pastors, they would be doing it better than most industries, right? But just as, as, a, as a picture, this is kind of a picture of that. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. Um, when I talk to pastors, I, I, I'm not feeling that right now. Just so you know, I've had times where I've, that, that's been true. But I'm doing well, right? So just so you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you guys you should, you know, check me into a home or whatever. I'm not, I'm, this is not me <laughs> in the moment. 90% work between 55 to 75 hours a week, right? These are pastors. 90% feel fatigued and worn out every single week. There's a phrase that we learned in Bible college, Sundays are coming. Like as soon as I finished Sunday and I was like, Ah, man, I've been preparing. Oh, it's a great service. Oh, that's awesome. There's this nagging loom. Like, you know, next Sunday, right? It just won't go away, right? 90% feel fatigued, worn out. 70% say they're grossly underpaid. 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. And, and knowing what I know about human beings, a lot of times it's the same parishioner, right? It's like at some point you're like, man, grow up or go out. I don't know. Just, just you know, mature, whatever, right? 78% were forced to resign from their church, 63% at least twice. This is an average pastor, right? This, and this has been true um, for a very long time. 80% will not be in ministry 10 years later. Think about that. 80% of pastors who start out will not be, even be in ministry in 10 years. And then um, the other part of it's even worse, only a fraction make it a lifelong career. I've had a lifelong career. 
I'm the fraction. I'm the weird guy, right, that's been in ministry for 37 years, not divorced, haven't, you know, didn't kill any of you guys that you know of, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, but that's real life. Those are statistics. And part of it is because the life we're living as pastors often doesn't reflect the way of Jesus, right? We're, we're, we're all about the truth of it, but so often not about his way. And then 91% have experienced some form of burnout in ministry. And 18%, almost a fifth of all pastors, say they are fried to a crisp right now. That's some graphic language, right? I am fried to a crisp, right? And that's, that's just not good. But this is how we do it. The way the world works, success, win, get ahead, be happy. And then Proverbs comes along and bursts our bubble and it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but, it, but its end is the way of death. So he's saying there's a path that when you're walking the path, you're like, yeah, this looks right. You ever done that? You ever been driving somewhere? And you're like, this totally looks like where I'm going. And then, you know, the GPS, if you have one, keeps saying, uh, uh, re, what's the word? <laughs> See, we all know it. That's what's so funny. Recalculating. You're like, shut up, Siri, and you just turn her off. Like, I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but there's a way that seems right, but it isn't right. And so those nuances are important as we build into this. So, so what is Jesus trying to do? There's this really cool book, if you get a chance to read it. It's by um, John Mark Comer. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a great book. He was a mega pastor who resigned from his mega church. And it, this was in uh, Portland, Oregon. And it was literally, they were adding hundreds and hundreds of people every week. It was f growing phenomenally well. But he was so burnt out. He was like, it, it was just horrible. So he writes this book afterwards, but he literally resigned as the lead pastor and started pastoring a little, uh, a little uh, storefront church some, somewhere downtown Portland. And he said, and, and he, there's a reason why he, said, why he did that. But this was the tagline in his book. It says, how to stay emotionally healthy and spiritually alive in the chaos of the modern world. This is a pastor, right? You'd think he would know what he was doing. He'd think he's following the way. Matthew 11 puts it like this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm the rabbi. You're the disciple, right? I'm the teacher. You're the learner. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not that Jesus doesn't have a yoke, that he doesn't have a way, but he's saying that my yoke is easy, my yoke is light, my burden is light. You choose the world's way, you still get a, you still get a yoke. It's not like you're, you're not yoked. It's just that it's going to be a lot more painful, a lot more difficult. So here's a picture of one. I mean, most of you guys know this. You've been around Christianity long enough. A yoke, um, you, you, you can have a single yoke, but it wasn't designed for the same thing. This yoke was designed to put two animals in it. And the, and the reason why is because they could share the workload. But this is what was so interesting. They would use this to train younger oxen, right, or younger animals. And they would put this younger oxen in a yoke with an older, more mature oxen. And the reason why is because the young oxen would not work at the right pace and he would wear himself out by half of the day. And so he was, he was a terrible oxen, right? But the problem was that he wasn't strong. It was just he did not understand the pace that he needed to work to get the whole day done. So they would put him in with this other oxen. They would yoke him together so he would learn a different pace. Y'all see where I'm going with this, right? It's like, it's not super, <laughs> it's not super uh, hidden, right? So there's no single yoke. 
um, this whole design is to keep us at the pace. This is interesting because Jer- in Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about this, and we read this scripture, and we know Jesus said it, but do we know where it came from? Jeremiah is actually where Jesus is. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. This is Jeremiah 6. He says, this is what the Lord says. So he's, this is uh, Jeremiah speaking to Judah who were going off track, and they were taking themselves into captivity and brokenness and heartache because they weren't following God's ways, right? Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says, stop at the crossroads and look around. This is uh, the New Living Translation. It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but it's, but it's accurate. It says, stop at the crossroads and look around. <laughs> do you know why there's a stop sign? Like, I don't know if you do this, but I cheat at stop signs and red lights. Not during the day, because it's too dangerous, right? Not in the city ever, because uh, I'm, even if I have the right of way, I look, because people are not smart sometimes, right? And they just run you over. They're like, and then they're like at your funeral going, I'm so sorry, I killed you, but you know, I didn't see the stop sign. I was on my phone. I'm like, ah, no worries, right? No big deal. We forgive you, but you're, you're still dead, <laughs> right? So I, I stop at most crossroads, but sometimes if I'm going somewhere in Dothan and it's two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and you're sitting at that one of those red lights, it's like, you know, we got all night. So we're going to sit here for 45 minutes. Anybody else do this? Any cops in here? First of all, okay. <laughs> I look both ways. I look behind and in front to see if there's a policeman. Then I violate the law, right? But not the spirit of the law. Now, here's the thing. You do that, there are consequences if you are caught. We all know this, right? So I do this at some point. I'm probably going to get a ticket. I'm going, I had that coming, right? No doubt about it. Here's my point. The, the point behind the crossroads is just that. There's traffic coming two different directions. And in life, that's the way it is. You, you live in heaven. You live in the world. You live in a culture that says, this is the way traffic needs to go. And, and if you aren't careful, if you don't stop at the crossroads from time to time and pay attention, even though you've got the right of way and you pull out, you're going to get plowed over or in today's vernacular, canceled. Right, so so if you really understand the way, you understand that the way of Jesus is not the way of the culture. Right, we kind of get this intrinsically. He goes on. He says, "Ask for the old godly way." I love that. It's like there is a way from history past that predates the place you're in now. You know, Jesus, the Bible says, in the last book of the Bible, points all the way back before time begins and says, "The Lamb was slain." before the foundation of time even began. So the old way is actually the new way to you. The culture has decided what a way looks like. It's decided hevel, right? It's decided for you what you're going to do. There's this really interesting thing, um, and it it amazes me, that, and this may be a little bit too heavy, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, I've been watching a lot of uh, TikToks and YouTube videos and stuff about, um, and I know this is culturally challenging, but bear with me, about detransitioning, right? And some of the things that they're saying as they're detransitioning, the whole gender, you know, it's really, it's about, a, it's about our identity. There's a battle in our culture for our identity, right? Um, if you don't know this as a parent, there's a battle for your child's identity. And if you aren't paying attention, they're going to win. You need to know that. Even if you are paying attention, there's a chance. Because again, culture, uh, we can talk about it all we want and say, well, you know, Jesus is so much bigger than culture. That is true, but when you are a vulnerable child, you don't know that. And you can get caught up in a lie that takes you down a road that you find out was the wrong road way too late. So much damage is done 
that it literally takes a miracle to, to, to build it back. And we see that, and God can do that. It's wonderful. But I'm watching these videos, and they're saying things like, the culture lied to me. And I'm like, that was probably something had we learned that early. You know, if had our parents taught us well, had we had some inclination, had when we began to find out the way ourselves, been honest and leaned in and said, I, I really want to know the truth rather than just what everybody says the truth is. That was my journey in Christianity. I, I got in trouble a lot. Started in Bible college, actually started way before Bible college, but especially in Bible college. I would ask questions in Bible college and the professor would be angry because he didn't know the answer. Rather than saying he didn't know the answer, he would just throw the party line at me and that made it worse. So I would push back until I got in so much trouble, they're just like, you just need to be quiet. And I was like, okay, I'll submit for a little while. <laughs> but like a little kid, you know, when you make him sit down in church and he looks at you and he's like, I'm, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up, right? That, that's kind of been me. And so I've pushed back on that hard. And some of you guys have done the same thing. You push back on what should marriage look like? What should raising your kids look like? We talk about all the time in our church, what should church leadership and government look like? Because if you get that right, a whole bunch of other things go well, right? So we're going after this. This is Jeremiah again. He said, if you look around at the crossroads and you ask for the old way, then he says you have to walk in it. And then he says, if, if you travel its path, you will find rest for your souls. And this is what he says. But you reply, no, that's not the road we want. <laughs> See, this is, I don't like preaching those passages, if I'm honest. Because it's like, I want to encourage you and, you know, get you going. And see, but I also want to remind you, too, that to some degree, me talking to you about the way and you choosing the way is two separate things. The Bible says that part of my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Your job is to receive the equipping and then do the ministry, <laughs> right? But you don't have to. You can just attend church, right? You can travel the way of the church world and culture where you never... You never get real vulnerable and let people really in. You never, you never join a community group because if you join a community group, people are going to find out what you're actually like. You never have anybody over at your house because they're going to look at your house and they're going to have questions about your walk with Jesus. You don't invite them to the things you do with your other friends. And this was my journey. When I first started leaning into Christianity, I had two sets of friends. I had my Christian friends and my party friends, right? And never the two shall meet. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's going to get both of my friends in trouble, right, both, both of me in trouble. But this is, the, this is the invitation that Jesus says. He says, hey, I have a way. It's not like the way of the world. It's not like the way of religion. You find him really going after that with the Pharisees. He said, it, this is a different kind of way, and I want to invite you into it. So um, that's real easy to say, and maybe you're looking at this and going, well, Jesus isn't a single mom with two jobs trying to struggle in the you know, economy we live in, right? Or you don't understand how busy we are. It takes two of us to work now as a couple. We're used to one of us could work and we could have a, you know, a decent home or a decent life and family. You know, trying to get our kids. We've got so many things happening. We've got the challenges here and the challenges there. Ah, like you don't understand. And, I'm, and I want to push back on that and go, I think Jesus had a few things to do when he was here. Right? Like, you know, save the world and stuff. You know, some small things. He had, he had it on his mind. Uh, he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to train up 12 disciples. Uh, one of them is going to go bad. They're going to have to replace him. And then those 12 disciples are going to preach to the whole world over the last 2,000 years until you become a Christian. That's pretty big, right? He did it 
in three years. So how did he do it? He, he had a different way. He had a different pace. So I want to just give you four things as I wrap this up that'll help you. I stole these from somebody else, so don't think about how amazing it is that I put it together because I didn't. But these are just four things about different ways you're struggling. So if you're struggling with the pace of life, which often we are, um, the way we live, rushed, stressed, overwhelmed, you can learn the unhurried rhythms of grace. There's a passage in, we all kind of heard it by now probably, in Matthew 11, the passage I read before. But down halfway through it, he says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And then he says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Remember, this is written in the 70s. It's paraphrased. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So he says, so what is it? Walking with him, being yoked together with Jesus, if you do that well, you'll try to go too fast or go too slow. And Jesus, because you're walking in yoke with him, right, in your relationship, he'll slow that pace down. What if you're struggling with temptation? If you feel far from God, dry or dull, there's an unbroken fellowship with the Father. Because you see, Jesus did this all the time. He went away to pray. He took time to spend with his Father. And you're way too busy for that. But remember, Jesus did that to teach a way that the source of all of his ministry didn't come from nowhere. It came because he spent time with his Father. And that became that Full, you know, that, that uh, for lack of a better term, that filled his battery, his reservoir, and allowed him to do ministry. But if you watch his pattern of life, he was always going away with his father alone. Love church, love being with brothers and sisters, but sometimes what you do in the secret place is what becomes the public place in public ministry for you. The other is, what if you're struggling with distraction? In this world, that's a really easy thing to do. You have to choose the uncluttered pursuit of God's mission. Um, provision is for the vision. Uh, people ask me all the time, it's like, you know, how do we do this whole thing? You know, how do we have enough money? Like, we're going to choose a different way. Um, Karen and I, when we moved to Atlanta, she'd been working in the corporate world for seven years. And we said, we prayed, and we felt like the Lord said to both of us, it's time for her to stop working in the corporate world in full time. And we're like, we don't know what that looks like. But we know whatever that looks like, she's not going to be working. And then we, when we moved to Atlanta, you guys have heard this story if you've been around here for a little while. You know, all hevel broke loose <laughs> in our life. <laughs> the 2008 downturn, I had a great job. The company gets sold. They fire me. Um, they fire all the managers. It wasn't just me. Um, and that was within the first 90 days. And we had just got established into a place, all the story. Uh, over the next two years, I had four different jobs. I would go work for something. The company would close down. I have to go find work while everybody's doing it too. In this process, somewhere in that, Karen comes to me and she says, Dave, I can work. My company's doing well. I can travel, you know, back and forth. I can go train. There's so many things I could do. Um, you, think it, you think I should do that? I'm happy to help. And I was like, yes! But I said it inside my head before I said it out loud because I'm a good husband. <laughs> and I said, um, let's, let's pray and see if the Lord has something different for us. We prayed. And to my great consternation, the Lord said, no, we're good. I don't want her to work. So I prayed again. Because, <laughs> <No. laughs> you know, again, that would have been, it would have been better. And easier. Not better. It would have been easier in my head. I was like, this is the way. Walk in it. You know, come on. Lord, get on board with the program. Like, did you not see the economy lately? And the Lord's like, yeah, my bad. I totally missed that. I'll change my mind for you now, right? How dumb are we? 
And so from that, Karen, we moved in, eventually moved into a neighborhood where there was a bunch of other leaders, families who lived there. And the, the ladies there would go for walks every day because I guess that's what you do in Atlanta. You just go for walks, right? And, and, it, and they were in the same boat. Didn't have, they weren't working. Their husbands were working full time. So we're, they were, we were choosing a different way than everybody else in Atlanta because everybody, you know, whole family, even, you know, the baby works in Atlanta. That's just how it has to be. And so she was able to go on walks every day. So 20, 30, 45-minute walks that turned into sometimes two hours over tea afterwards. And she built relationships with those women that have lasted now 20-something years. And there's, there's, all, there's moments where things hit her so hard. And, you know, and she's got great people to talk to here, and it's wonderful. But she can make a phone call and say, would it be all right if I came up and spent a couple of days? Come on. And she'll walk away from that refreshed, renewed, invigorated in ways that I can't even begin to tell you. And as much as I would love to say that I'm the, the most amazing husband and can I meet all your needs, it turns out I can't, right? But had we said no to God and his way in that about three years in Atlanta, that would, that would not be in her tool shed. Does that make sense? So I look at that now and go, it, it was hard for the season we were there, but it was the right way. So there's a way that seems right that actually isn't right. And so Jesus is trying to teach us, hey, you're going to come to a crossroads, and you have to make a decision about what's, what's my way and what's the world's way or your way or any other way. And you just got to make a choice, and it matters. And so here's why it matters. Let me just close with two scriptures. One is in Matthew and one is in Proverbs. Matthew 7 says it this way. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse. Why? Because it's built on bedrock or on the rock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains flood and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Great will be the fall thereof, the new King James and King James says. I like it, right? He's saying you're, you're going, you, you can't opt out of building. You didn't, you know, you hear this with the Gen Z right now. I didn't ask to be born. What does that even mean? <laughs> it's like, well, that's the dumbest. Well, don't, you don't have kids then, whatever you do, right? Don't, that's silly. But, but I understand, in some ways, I understand what they mean. But that's part of going, I want my world to revolve around me as opposed to I want to find my place in the world, right? And so you don't get to opt out of building. You can. You can go kill yourself. Like, I mean, that sounds terrible, but people are doing that. They're choosing that a lot right now, way more than they were five years ago. And they're trying to opt out of life because life makes no sense. The way is terrible and bad. And Jesus is saying, listen, the rains are coming. The storms are coming to your life. You're going to have trouble in your marriage. You're going to have trouble with your kids. You're going to have trouble with work. You're going to have trouble with money. You're going to have trouble with the economy, with politics. You're going to have trouble even in church. Go figure. But he said, be reminded I've overcome the world. So the answer isn't don't, you know, pretend hevel doesn't exist. You can do that if you want. And some Christians stick their head in the sand and go, that's that, you know, the myth of religious fulfillment I talked about last week. I, I became a Christian. Everything's going to work out perfectly for me. No, it's not. You know why? You live in hevel under the sun. But Jesus has overcome hevel, not just under the sun, but because he is the sun, right? And then, and then you look at that and go, there's more to it. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're going to build. One way or the other, you're, you're going to build. It's going to build. You're going to build on the sand or you're going to build on the rock, but you will build. 
And this is what I love about this scripture. Anyone who listens to my teaching and. It's probably the most important part of that whole scripture. And follows it. James said it this way. Are you going to be doers of the word only? I mean, are hearers of the word only? Or are you going to be doers? We know the answer to that. But if we're honest about it, sometimes we don't do that. So this is what Proverbs says, and I'll leave you with this. This is Proverbs 22.3. Um, Proverbs is interesting. It only talks about two kinds of people. So in Proverbs, you're going to find yourself in one column or the other. Um, and anybody knows what, what those are? Wise and, <laughs> and a fool, right? So this is what he says. Wise people see trouble coming and get out of its way. But, I, I was going to put that in big letters, but you can't say but in the South. You have to be careful with that word. Wise people see trouble coming and get out of its way, but fools go straight to it. See that last part? And suffer for it. But because they're fools, they either don't admit they're suffering or don't admit why they're suffering. So my challenge to you this morning is Jesus is offering a different way. We talk about the truth all the time. As we come into this new year, we're getting ready for grace teams. We're going to talk about that a lot next Sunday in, in Abundant Life. But here's how that fits in. God designed you with a gift. And First Peter says that the way you're designed is to take that gift and use it to serve others. Can you use it for yourself? Of course you can. And we, and we do, and it's, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, that's part of stewardship. We get to enjoy everything about our gift. But, but the stewardship aspect of it is my gift wasn't given just for me. It was primarily given to serve you. And so if you're not serving as a believer, there's a whole part of the way that you're missing. And, and if you're not giving generously, if you're not in community, if you're not passionate about transformation, if, if those things are not true about you in your life, you have a way that you're following. But I want to challenge you and ask you to take a look and stop at this crossroads right now and decide whether are you supposed to be going this way or are you supposed to be going this way? Are you actually in the right way? Are you actually looking as a wise person going, I see God's way and, and some, I know in wisdom that it's true and if I pay attention to it, it it's going to allow me to get out of trouble before trouble ever gets into me, right? But if I'm foolish, what I'll do is I'll choose the Bible says this way, I love it, that they see it coming and go to it anyway. Like, I'll be fine. Remember, remember Samson, the Old Testament? He's like, I'll get up today like I have every other day. Right? Put those guys to flight. Except that day was different. Now, here's what's fascinating about that story. It was true all the way up until that moment. I'm fascinated when, when marriages fall apart, the things that people say in that marriage. They'll say, that's just a surprise. I'm like, no, it's not. My favorite is when someone gets pregnant and they weren't supposed to get pregnant, whether, you know, out of marriage or actually they're a young couple and they're like, I don't know how this happened. That's my favorite of all time. I don't know how this happened. And, it's, and Karen looks at me, she's like, don't say it. I know you're going to say it. I'm like, I am going to say it, right? It needs to be said. <laughs> But this is that example. So I'm just asking you this morning, if you will, would you stop at the crossroads? And would you be honest about the way that you're living your life right now? Not the truth. I think most of you guys got that under control. 
But here's what I mean by that. As you go into this new year, I think you need, and if we're honest, we all need to do this to some degree. Get before the Lord and say, God, are some of the ways that I've been living, maybe not your ways. So I don't have time for community groups. And God's like, you don't not have time for community groups, right? I can't, I can't serve. Lord, I can't be a part, you know, I, I can't become vulnerable because I've been hurt in the past. And I'm like, I hear all that. But that's a way that seems right to you. At the end of it is the ways, of, it's the path that leads to death is what it's saying. So I just want to challenge you. It's, it's not hard. I just want to challenge you and go, as we go into this week, practically, just take some time, maybe talk it over with your spouse, talk it over with your family, um, and just say, is there something the Lord's talking to me about that? And I probably, while I've been talking, the Lord's brought some stuff up. So I'm going to pray. And as I do, would you just do some business with the Lord? And just go, Lord, would you talk to me about where I am in this, in this way and get me on the right path? I want to say yes to the path that you're giving me. So let's pray. So Jesus, we just say thank you, first of all. Lord, you were so good at challenging your disciples, but at the same time, inviting them into your family. Lord, you, you made room and said, become a part of me, walk with me, travel with me, be in the way with me. And, and Lord, you did that so well, but so often when they would say things or do things, you would say some really challenging things to them because they weren't seeing it and you needed them to see it. So Lord, this morning, in your kindness and in your goodness and in your love for us, Lord, would you say some challenging things to our heart right now? And Lord, would we have the courage to make new decisions going into this year? Maybe some relationships that we need to step away from or some relationships we need to start. Lord, maybe some paths about money or finance or any of those things, Lord, that we know you've been talking to us about and, and now's, now's the day. And so, Lord, we just say yes to that. Say yes to the change and the transition that you're bringing to our life. And Lord, we believe you for a good path in a good way. In your name we pray, amen. Up on the screen, we do this every week. Uh, we pray before the service. If you're wondering when church starts, it doesn't start uh, when we all get here for service. It actually starts in prayer time because we're, we start praying. These are some of the words of knowledge and pictures and scriptures that we heard. And we pray and ask God for those for you. So if any of these resonate with you when you read that and you go, you know, that's me. Maybe it's in relationship to what we have today and what we've been t talking about. Maybe it's just in something that God brings up. But if that's you, as everybody else is kind of making their way out, would you make your way forward and allow us to pray for you? Our team will be up here. So we love you guys. Have a great week, and we will see you next Sunday. Thanks.